Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 11? Chapter 11. Now, uh, as we come to Revelation 11, just to review briefly from last week, um, the scene, and be careful you don't make the scene about the church, uh, it's about Israel. Uh, the scene is Israel uh, and not the church. The place is Jerusalem. The time is the first half of the tribulation period. Remember chapters four, uh, 10 through 14 are a flashback. They're a flashback to fill in some of the gaps that we didn't get covered in the previous chapters we've studied. Uh, one of the things that makes chapter 11 of this book so exciting is that it confirms that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And I believe with the help and blessing of the Antichrist when he makes his appearance on the world scene. Uh, many believe that the seven-year covenant that the Antichrist makes with Israel, as prophesied in Daniel 9.27, will include a provision allowing them to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. Now, Daniel 9.27 says that at, at the midpoint of this seven-year covenant, the Antichrist will cause the uh, sacrifices and offerings to God, the God of Israel, to cease, implying a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Now, let me just throw something out to you, you may not have heard. I've heard this, and uh, it's interesting. Um, some people say it's going to take a long time to build a brick-and-mortar uh, temple. You know, I mean, you know, so how are they going to get it up so quickly? They may erect a tabernacle. I don't see anywhere in Scripture that says it has to be a brick-and-mortar building. They could throw up very quickly a tent, a tabernacle, like they had in the wilderness. Because I'm sure they're going to want to get going with the sacrifices and offerings to God. They want to get back to the, um, the temple worship. Now, the main obstacle uh, standing in the way of building this temple uh, is that the Jews believe that the Muslim Dome of the Rock Shrine sits on the spot where Solomon's temple once stood. And because Muslims believe it to be um, the place from which um, Muhammad ascended to heaven uh, on a night ride one time, and uh, Muslims believe that that was the very spot where the Dome of the Rock is built, that uh, Muhammad uh, rode to heaven one night, uh, and as such, it is one of the most sacred shrines in all of Islam. And every Jew knows that if you tamper with this shrine in any way, you start a holy war that's going to end all holy wars. They know that, okay? So the question is, how are the Jewish people going to erect a new temple um, on the spot where Solomon's temple was built, which they now believe is occupied by the Dome of the Rock? Remember... The Jews believe that for a temple to be legitimate, it has to be built on the very same site that Solomon's temple was built on. You, you can't have it anywhere else, or it just doesn't count in their mind. So again, how do they build a new temple without removing the Dome of the Rock and starting World War III? Well, let me stop and give you an alternative view of where the Temple of Solomon possibly originally stood. Now, ever since I was saved, the traditional view, which I had no reason to doubt, was that Solomon's temple sat on what we commonly call the Temple Mount. 
But a few years ago, I was introduced to an alternative view of where Solomon's temple was originally located, a view that is embraced by many Jew, Jewish and non-Jewish archaeologists and scholars alike. Uh, Christian scholars like author and apologist Frank Turk. Maybe some of you have heard the name Frank Turk. He's a very well-known Christian apologist, very sharp guy. He's embraced this location, okay? Um, as well as an ex a biblical explorer, that's what he calls himself, uh, who lives in the Holy Land, been there for many years. His name is Bob Cornuk. And you can check out uh, Bob Cornuk's uh, YouTube video. He's got several. Uh, the one I'm thinking of is called The Temple uh, slash Bob Cornuk. His name is spelled C-O-R-N-U-K-E. Um, even Chuck Missler was so taken by um, Bob's position on this, being that he's been in the Holy Land for many years, knows it like the back of his hand. Uh, even Chuck Missler, before he died, put Bob's video on uh, his website, Chuck's website, khouse.org, uh, where, where you can go there and type in Bob Cornuke and stuff will come up. Uh, Chuck uh, Missler, did I say Smith? I meant Missler. Chuck Missler, uh, very well regarded with the Lord now, but uh, really believed this man was uh, the, the real deal, uh, some, someone to be taken seriously. Um, now, this is not to say that this view is without controversy, okay? But um, I've watched uh, Cornuke's presentation several times, and I must admit it presents uh, some very compelling arguments for why Solomon's temple didn't sit on the Temple Mount at all. It's kind of startling, okay? Uh, why it didn't sit on the Temple Mount at all. Uh, those who embrace this view rightly point out that traditions are often wrong, and that's very true, very true. Um, you know, you've seen the painting of the Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples. That's wrong. They didn't sit at a table. They reclined on the floor, okay? And that's just one example of many we could look at, okay? Um, but these folks that embrace this view believe, uh, rightly point out, the traditions are often wrong, and that for hundreds of years, the traditional site uh, of where uh, of, of where people, Jews and Gentiles alike, have always believed Solomon's uh, temple originally set is also a tradition they, they maintain that is wrong. Flat out wrong. So then, where did the temple of Solomon originally sit? Well, as I just said, tradition says the temple sat on the temple mount. But the Bible also says, so did the Roman legion that occupied uh, an area on the temple mount. Book of Acts tells us this clearly, uh, you know, you can see it from the, the Gospels as well. History records that um, the, the Roman 10th Legion, now a legion is 6,000 soldiers. The Roman 10th Legion was stationed on the Temple Mount in the fortress of Antonia. Often accompanied, often accompanying each Roman legion, there, was, uh, there were support staff that could number upwards of 4,000 people. Many people have challenged the idea that 10,000 people could have been housed in the fortress of Antonia, a very small building, uh, basically occupying three acres. They believe that the Roman compound took up the entire 35-acre, what we call the Temple Mount. Uh, one 
one commanding officer in the United States Army said, if I was a Roman general, I would have taken the high ground. That's the highest ground, okay? And then it slopes down from there. He said, if I was a Roman general, I would have taken the high ground. With that many people, you would have needed uh, the 35-acre temple mount to take the whole thing for the Romans to then um, stay there. Um, so then where did the Temple of Solomon sit? Well, many believe it was originally located 600 feet to the south of the Temple Mount in the old city of David. Now, there's a lot of reasons why they believe this, and they give scripture, okay? I'm not saying they're, they're right. I think it's interesting, okay? Uh, but, it, but, you know, they give scripture, and they talk about why they believe this, and there's a lot of reasons, uh, scriptural and then just practical, uh, why they don't believe the temple was on what we call the Temple Mount. It was uh, down 600 feet to the south uh, in the city of David. Uh, David's original town. Well, let me just say this. David captured the um, Jebusite stronghold of Jebus. He and his men uh, captured the um, Jebusite. That was a very strong group of people. And they um, built their citadel there in Jebus, uh, where we commonly refer to as Jerusalem today. David and his men conquered it. And... Um, but it was only, you know, you think about Jerusalem today. You have to understand how cities work, right? I mean, when David captured and occupied uh, Jebus, which he renamed Jerusalem, it was only 12 acres of land. Think about that. But as people kept moving into the area, they had to keep expanding the wall outward to protect them from invaders. So today, I mean, well, they, they have the... A wall that as it eventually uh, was built, but of course now the city extends way beyond the wall, right? Uh, but but you have to understand that, and this is where many now believe the original temple was located. And again, there are many many compelling reasons to believe this. You can check out Bob Cornuke's presentation, and again, you want the one called the temple that is 30 minutes and 49 seconds long. You'll know it by looking at the timestamp, okay? Um, now listen, even though I said there is compelling evidence that Solomon's temple could, could have been built to the south of the Temple Mount located in the original city of David and not on the Temple Mount, it's not a settled fact by any means. You see, 38 years ago, after spending 16 years studying the Temple Mount area, a physicist and archaeologist at Hebrew University named Dr. Asher Kaufman came to some remarkable conclusions. Now, again, I've done a little more um, study on what uh, Dr. Kaufman uh, has proposed for many years about where the temple actually sat. He does believe it sat on the Temple Mount, okay? But um, his view is not, you know, a settled fact either. Uh, many others have challenged his view, okay? I'll give it to you, though. It, it makes sense, but, you know, you have to do your own digging, right? Um, but some 38 years ago, he first proposed this after studying uh, the area for 16 years. Again, very learned man, physicist, archaeologist, and so on. And uh, in his landmark article, which appeared in the March-April 1983 issue of Biblical Archaeology Review, Dr. Kaufman declared that while the Dome of the Rock 
has been assumed to sit on the sacred site of the Holy of Holies. The true location is actually 100 meters to the north. What is 100 meters north of the Dome of the Rock? A small gazebo-like structure below which Kaufman maintains is the only other place the original bedrock of what was once known as the threshing floor of Ornan is close to the surface. You remember how Satan moved in the heart of David to number the people. And as David numbered the people of Israel, this angered the Lord greatly and brought God's judgment upon the nation. As the, as the judging angel of the Lord stood above Jerusalem uh, after he had wiped out many people, and now he is hovering, standing above Jerusalem. Actually, he's standing right above the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. You know, you, you always built your threshing floor on a high place because the idea was that as you um, winnowed, uh, you know, you, you brought your sheaves in, you laid it down, they would drag a sled, uh, oxen would pull a sled back and forth over the sheaves with like nails sticking out of it. And this would actually thresh uh, the grain. In other words, separate it from the stalk. They would remove the stalk, but now you had wheat and chaff or barley and chaff now mixed together. So what they want, did then was they winnowed it and they would have shovels or, or sometimes uh, pitchfork kind of thing. And they would keep throwing it up into the air. Now the heavy grain, heavier grain would come right back down to the ground. The chaff being very light would get blown away. You, so that you wanted to put your threshing floor somewhere high. So this would, you know, uh, remember uh, Gibeon? Uh, was it, no, not Gibeon, was it, uh, oh my mind just went blank. Uh, Gideon, thank you. Uh, remember he was threshing his grain in a valley? Because every time the, the Midianites were the tough kid on the block at that time. So they would wait for the Jews to do all the work, then they come in and just take the grain. So he's hiding out. Well, that's pretty miserable because there's no breeze, really. Okay, I don't know where he's throwing it up. <laughs> uh, just trying to get some, uh, but, you know, it's a miserable thing to be. See, you wanted it high, okay? And so um, here's the angel of death. Uh, standing over now, the highest point of this area, the threshing floor of Ornan. And uh, you can read about that in First, um, uh, first Chronicles chapter 21. And, but um, as the angel stood over the, uh, the threshing floor of Ornan uh, with a drawn sword, ready to slaughter more people in Jerusalem, David cried out to the Lord, begging the Lord, Take my life. I did it, Lord, not these sheep. They didn't do it. It was me. And, and God mercifully stopped the angel, stayed the angel's hand. No more death, okay? And in his desire to thank the Lord for his mercy, David goes ahead and purchases Ornan's threshing floor, purchases it from Ornan to build an altar upon it to offer animal sacrifices to the Lord. You can again check out First Chronicles 21. Uh, this piece of ground eventually became the place where Solomon built the temple. As I just said, Dr. Kaufman declared that almost 40 years ago that he believes uh, the true location of Solomon's temple was 100 meters uh, north of the Dome of the Rock, the place where a small gazebo-like structure now stands. Hold on to that. I'll, I'll come back to it. Uh, again, uh, he maintains, Dr. Kaufman maintains that this is the only other place the original bedrock of what was once known as the threshing floor of Ornan 
uh, is close to the surface. Remember, they built over it and, and covered it, okay? But it's there, he maintains, all right? As opposed to the jagged rock over which the Dome of the Rock is built. Now, I've been in the Dome of the Rock once, and that's all I ever planned to be in it, okay? But I went into the Dome of the Rock. You can go in there, and, um, you know, you have to take your shoes off, so it's a little stinky. Uh, anyways, and uh, they've got like a wooden wall that's about maybe, I don't know, three foot, three and a half feet around this open area. And you can peek over and look. There's a jagged rock that's, that juts up. And uh, Muslims believe that's the rock that uh, Muhammad ascended to heaven from. Okay, but um, not a real great place to put the Holy of Holies. Uh, it wouldn't be level. All right. And so uh, this is what Dr. Kaufman is, uh, is, uh, is maintaining. Um, the stone 100 meters to the north is flat, providing a much more likely setting for the Ark of the Covenant within the Holy of Holies. Uh, not only is this location more logical, it seems to be more historical. You see, according to the Mishnah, which is the highly esteemed book of Jewish oral traditions, when the high priest stood in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, once a year he could enter the Holy of Holies, the Day of Yom Kippur. Uh, as the doors were open, uh, the Mishnah says he could look from the Holy of Holies through the doors of the temple, which were open. And if he kept looking uh, down the, the way, right in front of him, him would eventually he would see the Eastern Gate. In fact, if you were on the Mount of Olives, it says, when this was going on, you could actually see from the Mount of Olives through the Eastern Gate and uh, all the way into the Holy of Holies, okay? Couldn't go in there, but you could view it from a distance, all right? It wouldn't be a violation of what God had said. So this is the thing. This is the thing. I mean, so this was this straight line of sight from the Holy of Holies through the Eastern Gate, Mount of Olives, this is one of the reasons why uh, Dr. Kaufman holds to this, this particular view, right? Um, in fact, the results of a secret excavation in 1970 confirmed that the original eastern gate is directly below uh, the present eastern gate. So it does line up. They're right on top of each other, okay? Now, this, this makes Dr. Kaufman's assertion even more intriguing because if you stand 100 meters north of the Dome of the Rock, looking towards the Mount of Olives, I've done this. I have done this, okay? The eastern gate is directly in front of you. You can, you can see it, all right? Uh, you can see right to it, right, in all. Um, in addition, when the Muslims built this gazebo-like structure in the 10th century A.D., they gave it two names. The first name was the Dome of the Spirits. The second was the Dome of the Tablets. Now that's interesting to a lot of us because it seems that what they were saying is that they believed the spot where they built the Dome of the Spirits and the dome, also the Dome of the Tablets, a little gazebo-like structure, okay? They believe it to be, it sounds like, they believe it to be the very spot where the Stone of the, 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 um, uh, the Dome of the Spirits uh, you know, Dome of the Tablets. Tablets is just another way of saying the Ten Commandments, right? Who were that were placed in the Ark of the Covenant, which sat on the Holy of in the Holy of Holies. Also, they called it the Dome of the Spirits, 
because it was the Shekinah glory or the Spirit of God that hovered above the Ark of the Covenant. Are they telling us that they had some inside information that caused them to put the Dome of the Spirits there? Um, I don't know. It sounds like they're marking it out for us uh, in a special way. Uh, in other words, I believe, and many others believe, that the Dome of the Spirits was built on the very spot that the Holy of Holies once sat. And so according to Dr. Kaufman and other scholars, the temple could be rebuilt, and the Dome of the Rock would not have to be moved one inch. It could remain exactly where it has been standing for the last 1,330 years. And the reason being is that if the new temple was built 100 meters to the north of the Dome of the Rock, it would, listen, this is fascinating, it would put the Dome of the Rock in the outer courtyard of the new temple which is extremely interesting when you continue reading Revelation 11. Let's back up to verse 1. Then I was given a reed. We've covered all this last time. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Verse 2, But leave out, the Greek is stronger, literally cast out or throw out as if defiled, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city forty uh, underfoot for 42 months. Interesting, isn't it? If this is true, and the Jews wind up building the temple 100 meters to the nor north of the Dome of the Rock, it would put the Dome of the Rock in the outer court, a place that was usually reserved for Gentile seekers, a place where they could come in the temple area and ask questions of the priests about the God of Israel, possibly then converting to Judaism. But not a particularly holy place for the Jewish people, okay? Because um, wherever you have Gentiles, it's not usually considered a holy place, okay? Um, but guys, it seems like we're dealing with uh, dealing here with that period that the Lord Jesus spoke of in Luke 21, verse 24. I'll read it to you. Um, Luke 21, 24. And they will fall. Jesus is talking about the period we're, talk we're studying. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, the Jewish people. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles. Listen until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Let me give you a little historical, just a little side point. In 1967, Israel once again forced to fight overwhelming odds for its very survival. Took on Egypt, Syria, and Jordan in a short war that lasted from, from June 5th through June 10th, which came to be known as the Six-Day War. The Six-Day War. Israel won a decisive victory resulting in them capturing the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, the old city of Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights. At this point, Jerusalem was finally and firmly back under Jewish control for the first time in 1900 years. I wasn't a Christian in 67, but those who were Christians were extremely excited over what had just happened because in their minds they thought 
that the times of the Gentiles trampling on and controlling Jerusalem was over, which meant Jesus was coming very soon. I'm very thankful he didn't come in 1967. Would have left a whole bunch of us out. Okay? So thank God for his timing. All right? And what he used was interesting. How we, what God used to delay the timing of everything. Because, you know, God uh, is not slack concerning his promise of coming judgment, as some people count slackness, uh, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And what God used, very interestingly, right after Israel recon conquered this whole area, which meant the Temple Mount now came under their control. General Moshe Dayan, in what many considered a misguided attempt to offer an olive branch to the Muslim community, let them retain control of the 35-acre Temple Mount. Thus, the times of the Gentiles continues to this day. Just an FYI, the times of the Gentiles began in 606 B.C., when Israel first went into captivity, and scholars believe it will continue until... Uh, Jesus Christ returns to deliver the holy city of Jerusalem uh, from all Gentile occupation and redeem Israel completely uh, and totally. You can check out Zechariah chapter 14 goes into this, okay? But uh, it says here that these Gentiles will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now we've talked about this before. Let me say it quickly again. 42 months, you're talking about a biblical month, okay, a biblical month. Uh, 42 months is 1,260 days. A prophetic year is 12 months of 30 days, just so you understand, okay? So 1,260 days would be three and a half years uh, going by a biblical prophetic calendar. One author said this, and I quote, This trampling of Jerusalem by Gentiles probably takes place in the last half, the last half of the final seven-year period described by Daniel in Daniel chapter 11, verses 26 and 7, when the Antichrist pours out his fury on the people of Israel. Now, this is described in Revelation 12, verses 13 to 17, and Matthew 24, verses 15 to 28. The author goes on, And they will tread the holy city underfoot, Greek scholar A.T. Robertson said uh, that to tread underfoot means, and I'm quoting him, to trample with contempt, end quote. Revelation 11, verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's three and a half years. Right after the rapture takes place, now we've talked about this before, so please bear with me. Right after the rapture takes place, there won't be any true believers of Jesus Christ left on the planet Earth. Think about that. When the rapture happens, every true born-again Christian upon the face of the Earth is going to be gone. Okay? There is going to be no one left to share the gospel. And God never leaves himself without a witness. So he immediately sends two witnesses to the earth. Two witnesses. Why two witnesses? Well, 
I know 2 Corinthians 13, 1 says, In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. That's true. Uh, uh, commentators often point back to when Moses sent out the 12 spies, remember? Uh, to spy out the land. And uh, 10 of them brought back an evil report. Uh, two uh, brought back a good report, Joshua and Caleb. But the 10 spies um, so scared the people about the giants in the land, and there's no way we can go up against them and win, that the people wanted to go back to Egypt. And so it caused God to drive them back out into the wilderness for 40 years until that generation 20 and above died off. And then God brought their children into the promised land, plus Joshua and Caleb to inherit it, right? Um, so commentators say, well, you know, people, we, we learn from our mistakes. Okay, Don't send 12 spies in because 10 are no good. Just send the two, okay? So, uh, so only the two were correct that, of the ones Moses sent in. Now, uh, years later, when they did finally enter into the promised land under Joshua, uh, Joshua seems to have learned from Moses' mistake, and he only sends two spies in, okay? Uh, Joshua 2, verse 1. Uh, it's interesting. We're talking about bearing witness, bearing testimony, right? You remember the morning of Jesus' resurrection. As the ladies poked their heads into the, uh, into the opening, okay, the stone had been rolled away with, of the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid, and they saw how many angels inside there? Two. One on either end where the body of Jesus had lain. And they bore witness. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here but is risen. Go tell his disciples um, that he is risen from the dead. And then finally, when Jesus, uh, during his earthly ministry, at one point in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, uh, he sends out some witnesses uh, to go uh, all around uh, Israel sharing the good news. Um, he sent his witnesses out two by two. So just, I don't know, a little side thought there just to meditate on. But verse 3 tells us that it will be the responsibility of these two witnesses to prophesy. To prophesy. Now, we make the mistake of thinking that prophecy is only foretelling or predicting the future. And certainly that was part of what a prophet did when God sent them to speak to Israel on his behalf. Yes, there was an element of foretelling, futuristic prediction. But most of what the prophets did when they spoke for God was simply to declare his words to his people. In other words, most of their ministry consisted not in foretelling, but in forth-telling. In other words, speaking forth, proclaiming, or preaching the word of God. These two men are called prophets in the Old Testament sense, calling primarily the nation of Israel to repent and turn from their wickedness. They're, many of them are worshiping the Antichrist, thinking he's their Messiah. Okay, And um, so God sends these two witnesses, and they have an incredible impact on the nation of Israel. We know that from Revelation 11, uh, 144,000 Jews get converted. I'm convinced many, many millions more uh, who are Gentiles. But we know 144,000 Jews, Paul the Apostles, get converted, sealed with the seal of God in their foreheads, and go out and preach the good news uh, to everybody. Okay, but they, they get started uh, with the two witnesses. Okay, the two witnesses. 
Um, the fact that they're wearing sackcloth, uh, as many Old Testament Old Testament prophets wore when they proclaimed God's word, tells us that their ministry, listen, won't be joyful. It'll be mournful, mournful. You see, they will be hated by most of the people of the world at that time who don't want to hear what they have to say, but the people of the world don't have a choice. Today, people don't have to listen to the gospel. They don't want to. They can turn me off on the radio. You know, They could change the channel on their TV. They could walk away from a conversation that a Christian is having with a co-worker. They can take a track and throw it in the garbage. Today, they can turn off the message. In those days, they won't be able to. They won't be, we'll see why in a moment, all right? They won't be able to. But that's not to say that the ministry of the two witnesses is going to be a happy one. Uh, it's going to be a very sorrowful one. And um, they're they're also called the two witnesses. I want to key on that word, witnesses. A, a witness testifies to something they have seen, right? We think of a court of law primarily where a witness or witnesses are brought in to testify of what they have seen, okay? Uh, the Greek word uh, martyris uh, was actually a word that was used of, um, of somebody dying for their faith. And so because in those days to, to be a, a witness for Christ, to, to declare Jesus, meant you were probably going to be killed. The word martyris became synonymous with martyr, somebody who dies uh, for their faith, okay? But... Um, these um, these two witnesses will conduct their ministry, listen, during the first half of the tribulation period. Again, the rapture of the church is going to happen be before the tribulation begins. I don't think long before. I don't think the rapture is going to happen and then two years later the tribulation is going to start. That's just my feeling. I could be wrong, okay? Uh, I think that once the church is out of here, the scenario that's going to uh, uh, begin to unfold and eventually lead up to the return of Christ is going to begin to unfold rapidly, I think, okay? Um, I think the Lord wants to get this thing going. I think that he wants to send his son back quickly to take his rightful throne, right? So uh, the church is raptured, and then no believers left on the earth, so God raises up, I think, pretty much immediately these two witnesses. I think they're in the wings. They're in the, they're in the on-deck circle, okay? Uh, they're ready to go, just waiting for God to give them the word, Okay? And um, they conduct their ministry during the first half of the tribulation period. And guys, I believe they're going to proclaim to the world that the disasters, disasters occurring uh, during what we know is the first half of the tribulation period are, in fact, judgments from God. Remember we studied this and we came to uh, Revelation 6, 17, where the people of the world said, you know, uh, say to the rocks and all fall on us, you know, because who, who can escape the wrath of the Lamb, right? The, the, day of his, the day of his wrath is come and who can escape, right? But in the Greek, it says the day of his wrath has already come. What is going on, I believe, is that they don't believe it's the judgment of God initially. They think it's a natural disaster, global warming. We've got to get this global warming under control, you know, that, that kind of thing. Man has this incredible propensity of explaining things away that are obvious because he doesn't want to deal with it. Doesn't want to deal with it, right? And so the two witnesses are, are screaming. This is not natural phenomenon. These are the judgments of God. Well, at one point, when the judgments start to affect uh, the, uh, uh, the space and, and heavenly bodies and so on, now they can't deny it any longer. For the wrath of the Lamb has already come. They come to that realization now, right? 
Um, but the one of the ministries of the of the two witnesses is to proclaim to people that again, first half of the tribulation period, that what is happening in the way of cataclysmic upheaval, this is judgments of God. And he's giving you time after each judgment, things quiet down. He's giving you time to think about it, repent, and get saved. We've talked about that, right? But the two witnesses, I believe, will warn people of the, uh, of the world at that time that the most severe judgments are yet future. That would be in the second half of the tribulation period, which the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. Great because things are going to escalate, ramp up, okay? Which started off, you know, I, I wouldn't call them, you know, light judgments, okay? But certainly not as devastating as the ones that begin to take place as you enter into the second half of the tribulation period. It's Jesus is like a woman who enters into hard labor, um, hard labor. Uh, and so it's going to be pretty rough. They will no doubt also proclaim that after God's final outpouring of judgments, if people don't repent, well, it's going to lead to the ultimate, eternal judgment for all those who refuse. Uh, all that God has tried to do to bring them to his son. Uh, people are very hard-hearted. Some are earth dwellers. This is their home. They want nothing else. And so the two, prophet, the two witnesses will definitely tell people that, look, uh, you think it's bad now? Much worse judgments are coming. Get right with God now. And if you don't, there is coming an ultimate judgment. We call it hell, the lake of fire. And so the world, people of the world are hearing all this, They don't want, but they don't want to hear it. They, they don't want to hear it. They can't really do anything about it. We'll see if we get to that tonight, why they can't. But um, look, uh, wasn't it Amos who pleaded with the Lord, in judgment, remember mercy? And that's always our God. I mean, God has to bring judgment at one point because he's a righteous and holy God and cannot look the other way when it comes to sin forever. Uh, his long suffering is working that people would come to repentance and get saved before uh, he has to bring uh, judgment. But uh, it's always his default setting to show mercy. And um, so at this time where they're, where they're warning people and telling them, look, God's judgment has already kicked into gear. It's going to get worse. This is the day of salvation. Repent. They're, they're sharing the gospel like crazy along with this proclamation of judgment because God wants these folks saved. And uh, he'll be, they'll be calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ to escape whatever future wrath of God is coming. Okay? And we, as I just said, at least 144,000 144, Jews will be converted no doubt millions more. Whether or not there's going to be any more Jews converted um, through the ministry of the two prophets, I mean, there might be. God singles out 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes for special mission, okay? I know that they're going to bring millions of Gentiles to Christ uh, as, as time goes on. Um, notice verse 3 again, where God calls these two men, my two witnesses this is very important we won't have time to get into it to, tonight but we will next time god willing uh he noticed in verse 3 says my two witnesses the greek guys is very strong and can be translated the two the two underline the the two witnesses of mine what am i saying um 
this many commentators believe the way it's worded in the Greek and the emphasis and all indicates that these two, listen, have been used by God before. These two have been used by God before. Let me just say again, when the rapture takes place, and I believe it will be before the 70th week of Daniel, the final seven years begins, the church will be gone. The church is the light of the world. So if the church is gone, um, who will bring the light of the gospel to the world? God never leaves himself without a witness, so he recalls the two. He never leaves himself without a witness, so he recalls what God calls the two. Now listen, you, if you're well known enough, nobody has to mention your name, right? That would never happen with me, but, you know, I mean, you know, you, if you're well known enough, they just give you a, a, like a little title. The boss is coming. Well, if you're a Springsteen fan, which I'm not, uh, you know who that means, right? Uh, years ago, uh, we were, I was getting my daughter settled in for Bible college out in California, and we had a little time. We got everything done, and, and so she wanted to go with the family down to uh, Hollywood. Okay, walk around. Okay, fine. Uh, you know, so we went down to, I don't know if it was Rodeo Drive. It was one of those big deal streets, okay? And they had all the big name stores. I'm talking the big name stores. Gucci and Rodeo Drive. Gucci and, and, and all these big name stores, right? We walked past one store. It had no name on it. N nothing to indicate what this store was. You know what it was? We went in. Um, stopped by a couple guys at the front door didn't think we were worthy enough uh, I guess we weren't dressed properly it was uh, Pravda pra not Pravda uh, pra Prada Pravda. Maybe, that's, maybe that's more to the point it was Prada they thought they were so hot shot big deal they didn't have to put their name on the door I thought, you know, that in itself would cause me not to buy, if I, even if I could afford something there, that in itself would cause me not to buy anything from this store. You uppity, you know, uh, place like this, right? But these two guys are, have, have a reputation. And God himself simply refers to them as the two. The two. Okay. The two witnesses of mine, indicating they have been used by God before. So God, never leaving himself without a witness, church is gone, light is out, so he recalls the two for special service during the first half of the 70th week of Daniel to preach the gospel primarily to Israel, but also to the people of the world. They will preach a message of repentance clothed in sackcloth the same way the Old Testament prophets would preach when they were mourning the sin of God's people. Jeremiah spent his entire ministry mourning. He was called the weeping prophet. He knew the judgment of God was coming, but the people were so steeped in sin that they didn't take it seriously. They just didn't take it seriously. And uh, some of them thought, well, we're, we're Jews. We're God's people. <laughs> we have Abraham's blood in our veins. 
we have been circumcised. Certainly we're exempt from judgment. Uh, they found out differently, didn't they? Um, but often in the Old Testament, when the nation was in really a, really a bad place, a lot of sin, a lot of idolatry, uh, prophets would go through towns wearing sackcloth. And every Jew knew what that meant, that the message was not going to be uplifting. You know, it, you remember when Samuel came to a particular town and the city fathers met him at the gate and said, are, are, do you, are you here in peace? Samuel said, yeah, I'm here in peace. Well, if you walked in with a, with a, with a burlap sack on your body, they wouldn't even have to ask you that. You weren't there for peace. It wasn't for a barbecue you were going to be attending. It was to declare judgment, to repent, right? Um, but these two witnesses are going to preach a message of repentance. For these three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth, the same way the Old Testament prophets would preach when they were mourning the sins of God's people. Uh, what are they mourning? Well, here they're mourning. They're going to be mourning. They haven't showed up yet. Uh, but here... The, new, uh, the two witnesses are going to be mourning how the Jews are following a false Messiah, thinking he is their true Messiah. Well, they just didn't know any better. Well, they should have. Because Jesus himself said he warned the leaders of Israel who had rejected him. He said, I came in my father's name, and me you did not receive. Another will come in his own name, him you will receive. Speaking of the Antichrist. The message of the two witnesses will be to call people to repentance before it's too late. Before the judgment of God wipes them out. Of course, this message will be completely at odds with, out of step with the message of the Antichrist and those who follow him. Isn't it interesting that we have a, th a theological system called the word of faith right we have a theological system that basically basically believes if it's positive it's of god and if it's negative it's of the devil how deceived they are all you gotta do is read the old testament to know that oftentimes god's prophets came across very negative in the sense if you don't repent you're going to die kind of negative okay okay if you don't repent god's going to take all your stuff and kill you i mean it's not exactly uplifting but it was intended to drive home a point okay um so the two witnesses they're going to be preaching what the world's going to think is a very negative downer message whereas the antichrist and his followers they're going to be preaching a message that is totally opposite i believe the antichrist will tell people how they can ascend to godhood. Look at me. I was once like you. I've learned the techniques. I've uncovered the hidden knowledge. If you just follow in my footsteps, you can all achieve godhood. Of course, he starts a religion where everyone worships him initially. Uh, but, you know, you want, if you, I believe the message he's going to, for a lot of reasons, the message he's going to preach will be a message of follow me and you can become gods, you can live forever. That's a pretty positive message for an unbeliever to think about, right? Not only that, it's going to be a message of peace and unity. Peace and unity. See, all these negative Christians, and, and it won't be just Christians alive. There'll be Jews. There'll be Muslims. 
these monotheists, right? These folks are holding us all back. That's what the New Age believes. That's what, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, basically Hinduism and others that believe that we're really all one, we're all one God. Uh, collective consciousness, we're all one God. You have to believe, you have to come to, get enlightened to understand your God. They actually te teach in their writings that if you don't pro proclaim your divinity, you're selfish. Because you're holding everybody else back. You're a cancer cell in the body of humanity. The world is a, is a living entity. And we all need to come together and declare our own divinity. And then we need to, you know, I don't know, assume the lotus position, look at our navel and go, um. I don't know what they want people to do, but you have to meditate uh, and get it in your mind that, uh, you know, uh, to bring about world peace. And they believe this. If enough people can visualize world peace at any given, they tried this back in the 80s, right? Uh, if you can get enough people to visualize world peace, because really, uh, reality is an illusion created by the mind. Uh, that's what the Hindus believe. It's called Maya, Maya, and and, and everything. And if you so, if you don't like your present reality, visualize a new reality. You're sick, visualize yourself as healthy. You're poor, visualize yourself uh, as uh, as um, as wealthy. And the, the health and wealth movement. I'm getting off the track. I'm sorry. The health and wealth folks have adopted this you should read some of the quotes i have in my library of so-called christian evangelists and pastors and leaders who are basically telling people to visualize their wealth to visualize their health picking up on a hindu technique that's been around in the occult for centuries where you know you can actually create your own reality with the power of your mind well where's god fit in to a belief system like that of course he doesn't. I'm God. That's what man has always wanted. His own divinity. Nobody telling him what he's going to do. I'm going to uh, create my own uh, universe and my own whatever reality and so on, right? Um, and I completely forgot where I was now. Um, but no, no. The, the, so the Antichrist is going to have a very positive message. Uh, him and his followers, they're going to be preaching you know, uh, the, the utopia is coming. Uh, and for a while, it seems like they've achieved it, right? When, when the Antichrist first shows up, initially, he brings a time of pseudo-peace and prosperity to the world. People think, we're here, it's utopia. We're in the new age, okay? This is the age of Aquarius. And, and here is our Messiah, Maitreya Buddha. He's led us into the utopia we've been praying about for many, many years. But Paul the Apostle warned in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, everything looks great for a while, but then when they say peace and safety, ah, utopia, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The judgment of God. Revelation 11, verse 3, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in that. Sackcloth, verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Interesting imagery. The two witnesses become the only light of the world. That's where they're likened to as lampstands. They become the only light in the world, just like the menorah 
was the only light in the tabernacle. Later, when Solomon built his temple, I think he had 10 menorahs made. But they were the only light source because they represented Jesus Christ, but also who was the light of the world, but also the truth of God. But these initially, these two witnesses become the only light in the world, spiritual light uh, for a time, uh, proclaiming God's truth when the world is now solidly under the Antichrist control. You get the picture. The, the Antichrist has now taken control of the world, brought about a one-world government. Or she's working for the devil, right? Everything looks great. I think God loves to trigger leftists. And, and we're talking about our world full of leftists. I'm sorry to say it that way, okay? Uh, people who have embraced leftist ideology, it's demonic. It's the, it rooted in Marxism, yeah, but it goes even deeper than that. Uh, the wisdom of the world is earthly, sensual, demonic. It's all about man. It's all about making man God. It's all about making man the focus of everything instead of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Um, but the world is finally under Satan's control. Finally, he's got control of the world. Antichrist has united the whole world in a one-world government. But God brings the two witnesses as a thorn in the devil's side and the Antichrist's side. And while everyone's preaching this wonderful, glorious gospel of the new age, here these guys are telling people, don't listen. Don't, don't listen. They're lying. This is of the devil. It's not of God. And, and, and people want to kill these guys to shut them up. But they won't be able to. Satan will not be able to stop this, these two, their ministry. Remember, John opened his gospel with Jesus Christ being the light and the light shone in the darkness and the darkness, what? The Greek is, couldn't do a darn thing about it. Well, it's a loose paraphrase. Uh, the, 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 you know, the devil could not, the darkness could not extinguish it because light is always more powerful than darkness, okay? And so we're seeing this lived out in the ministry of these two guys, right? Uh, when the angel called these two witnesses, two olive trees and two lampstands, if you've got a King James, I think it says uh, candlesticks. Will you please cross that out? There was no wax in the tabernacle and later the temple. These were oil-burning lamps. Think of the menorah in the tabernacle, just to simplify it, right? Seven branches, okay, three on each side, one in the middle. On the top were these cups or bowls, uh, each having a wick inside. And, um, of course, you know, when Solomon built the temple, uh, he made these menorahs pretty large. And so uh, it probably was the job of the youngest priests to put a ladder by each menorah and uh, walk up, the, you know, climb up these ladders and dump gallons of oil in each of the, the bowls on top of the stems. Because the menorah was never to, supposed to go, once lit, was never to go out, right? All pointed to Jesus. Um, every young priest probably fantasized how he could do, invent something whereby he wouldn't have to fill all these bowls every day with oil. It's a lot of work. Oil's heavy, okay? You're shimmying up, I don't know how many feet, 15 feet in the air or whatever, and, and you know, dumping, coming back down, and, you know, uh, there's 
there's seven bowls to each menorah. If you're talking about Solomon's temple, that's 70 bowls you got to fill. Uh, every day it had to be done, okay? So Joshua was the high priest at one point. This is now years later. The temple of Solomon has, you know, has been destroyed, actually. And so Joshua, a guy named Joshua, was the high priest. And he had a vision. I'll paraphrase what it was. He saw uh, two lampstands, and next to them were two olive trees with piping that led directly from the olive trees into the bowls. That's a great, that is awesome. Because now they just, you know, the olive trees just fed oil into these cups. Nobody had to take it upon themselves to refill them. So he picks up on that, okay? Uh, turn to Zechariah, they'll have to finish, but turn to Zechariah 4. Because when the angel called these two witnesses, the two olive trees and two lampstands, it would have immediately taken John back to what Zechariah said. Zechariah 4, starting with verse 11. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and, it, uh, and at its left? Uh, and I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden lamp, the golden oil drains. He's just describing what I've described to you, okay? Um, then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Now, of course, the immediate application was Zerubbabel, who was the um, civil leader, kind of the governor, and Joshua, who was the religious leader, the high priest. Of course, it looked forward to what we're studying in Revelation 11, right? About a future time when you would have two witnesses um, who, in essence, would stand beside the Lord of all the earth as his anointed lights, shining the light of God's truth in the spiritual and moral darkness of those days as God's spokesman. Again, the two olive trees and the two lampstands is an idiom of how these two, these two witnesses now, will be supplied by an inexhaustible supply of oil. In other words, they will continually being, will continually being filled with the Holy Spirit to give the light of God, the truth of God, for the entire duration of their ministry. Nobody's going to put their light out. Nobody's going to be able to kill them to extinguish the light. Okay. So the idea of oil uh, is often a, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, all right? And so the fact that these were being constantly being filled with oil suggests a constant flow of the Holy Spirit filling them, uh, using them, the light not ever going out. Their, their witness would not uh, go out. Uh, let's look at verses 5 and 6. And if anyone wants to harm them, Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Talk about dragon breath. Whoa. Okay. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds. And I have no reason to doubt this is not literal fire. Okay. I don't think that we're talking allegorically now. I think God gives these two witnesses special supernatural ability to, you know, 
People, anyone tries to kill them, fire goes out of their mouth and destroys whoever tries to, to kill them, all right? Uh, devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. So whatever way they, or I'm sorry, if anyone tries to harm them, uh, he must be killed in this manner. Fire will destroy, okay? These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over water to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, guys, this is going to take place during the first 1260 days of what we call the 70th week of Daniel or, of course, the tribulation period. For this three and a half year time, uh, these two will be indestructible, verse 5 tells us. Uh, it's impossible to be dogmatic about the specific identity of these two prophets slash preachers. We know they have been, they, we know they have served God in the past. Again, God calls them the two witnesses of mine. Who are they? Who are they? Well, next time we'll look at it, okay? Uh, and there is a lot of speculation, even among good Bible-believing Christians. As to, but I believe if you don't nail down the true identity of these two, uh, it's going to hinder your ability to appreciate other scriptures, okay? Uh, I believe, in my mind at least, it's clear. Uh, but we'll look at that next time, God willing. And so uh, uh, start reading and praying and whatever. See if you can come up with who they are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in darkness, that these things should overtake us as a thief. But we know your church will be raptured out of here before the uh, tribulation period begins and the Antichrist comes to power, uh, Lord. But an um, uh, incredible period of time that's coming upon the world. And uh, Lord, thank you that we'll have a balcony seat. But Lord, for all those of our loved ones, family, friends that don't know you, please begin to work overtime in their hearts, opening their eyes breaking them of their stubbornness, their rebellion, bringing them to their knees in brokenness and surrender, that they might receive Jesus, Father, as their Lord and Savior and escape the wrath that is coming. So we thank you, Lord. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.